Dr. Eric Chain, joining us from the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. He's a neuroscientist who works at the intersection of electrophysiology, neurology, and immunology. He's an assistant professor at the Institute for uh, of Bioelectronic uh, Medicine at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research, and he received his bachelor's degree from the University of California at uh, Los Angeles, uh, aka UCLA, go Bruins, and his PhD <laughs> from NYU. Um, his research focuses on how electrical and chemical signals enable communication between the nervous system and the immune system. And through the use of technologies adapted from the fields of neuroscience and bioengineering, Dr. Chang's work uh, aims to understand how neural signals encode information about important somatosensory, interoceptive, and immune functions. His lab has recently developed tools to perform calcium imaging of vagal sensory neurons, which encode and transmit a wide range of stimuli occurring in the body. And additional work from the lab has been focused on intentionally modulating peripheral nerves, such as the vagus nerve, with optogenic or electrical stimulation to change physiological and immune responses in context of various disorders. The primary goal of his research is to determine how neural signals in different pathways encode information about physiological functions and to use this knowledge to advance therapies in bio electronic medicine. So uh, welcome, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to hear uh, about your talk. Great, uh, thank you so much, Monica. Um, thank you for the invitation. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, perfect. Okay, uh, and you know, uh, I wanna say, you know, thank you to you and kudos to you and your team uh, for organizing this series and, um, you know, putting together these resources for the type one diabetes community. Uh, as you know, this is not, Diabetes is not our primary research focus. Um, so, you know, just recently I, I was looking through some of the videos and, and I learned a lot from uh, some of the different research approaches and studies that are, are happening in this space. So um, again, congrats to you for putting this together and, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, what I'm gonna speak about today is uh, gonna be focused on the vagus nerve uh, and particularly how it's involved in communication between the brain and the body and the nervous system and immune system. For those of you who don't know what the vagus nerve is, uh, the, it's one of the cranial nerves in the body, it's cranial nerve 10. And if you can see on this um, diagram on the left, um, it's actually a pair of nerves that descend down from the brain stem. Uh, and you can see that it you know, is, is the longest cranial nerve in the body, uh, innervating basically all of our major visceral organs. And you can see uh, that it doesn't take a straight path to innervate these organs, it takes kind of a a winding wandering path, which is where the name uh, vagus come from. It, it comes from its Latin for wandering. Um, and you know, in some cases, it you know, the innervation of an organ passes through another organ or behind it or around it. Um, so um, that might present uh, complications, which we'll maybe talk about later, about um, interfacing with some of these nerves as they go into end organs. Um, it's part of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, constituting a major part of the parasympathetic pathway, which is uh, sometimes called rest and digest, um, versus the sympathetic, which is fight or flight. Um, it controls uh, major uh, vital functions, um, such as breathing, heart rate, blood pressure, uh, relevant to this audience, glucose levels, um, hunger, satiety, uh, gut motility, uh, as well as a number of autonomic reflexes, such as coughing and swallowing. So. Um, you, you can see it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty important nerve and involved in many crucial uh, functions that are vital for our survival. Um, and what's interesting about it is actually a majority of the vagus nerve fibers are sensory in nature. So they're sensory afferents that ca carry information from the viscera and the body up to the brain. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. 
Um, some of you have uh, maybe also heard of uh, vagus nerve stimulation or VNS, uh, which is uh, simply placing a, a, a neural cuff, a stimulator, uh, sometimes called a microregulator, onto um, it's simply the left vagus nerve um, and uh, passing electrical current through it to activate a set of fibers that descend down into uh, either go up into the brain or descend down into different organs. And this VNS is actually FDA approved already uh, for a long time to treat uh, medication refractory or treatment resistant epilepsy. Um, then subsequently uh, treatment resistant depression. And, and these are typically after patients fail uh, many, several rounds, I think for depressions, four different antidepressant medication regimes before they might be recommended or indicated for a VNS implant. And then just recently, uh, two years ago, uh, VNS was approved for motor recovery following stroke. And, uh, and next on the horizon, uh, maybe, is an approval for a VNS for chronic inflammatory disorders. And, um, and that came out of work that was originally actually done here at the Feinstein Institutes at Dr. Kevin Tracy's lab, um, where he showed in this paper um, a long time ago, maybe before some of you were born, in 2000, uh, in nature that in a rat model of endotoxemia showed that if you uh, uh, do vagus nerve stimulation electrically at the cervical level, uh, you can reduce levels of um, systemic circulating cytokines uh, in this model of endotoxemia. So if you, um, so I'll just go over this one figure quickly. Um, on the y-axis, they're plotting uh, serum levels of tumor necrosis factor, or TNF, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. Um, LPS is a bacterial endotoxin that is used to uh, induce acute endotoxemia. So no LPS, no increase in TNF. In a rat that was injected with LPS, you see this, uh, they get sick and you see a, a very uh, high rise in TNF. Um, and then when they perform a vagotomy, uh, the TNF rose even higher. Vagotomy is cutting the vagus nerve. Um, and, then, uh, and then the main result is that um, vagotomy, but stimulating electrically the distal ends that's still connected to the organs actually significantly reduced TNF um, in this rat model of endotoxemia. So this uh, reduction of, of cytokines uh, due to electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve has been termed the inflammatory reflex, which is mediated by the vagus nerve. And you know, work from um, uh, Dr. Tracy's lab and many others around the world have um, shown this in, uh, as efficacious um, you know, in many preclinical models, I'll just quickly go over uh, this latest paper in uh, PNAS uh, that uh, was pub uh, led by a graduate student in the lab, Adam Kressel. And uh, so what we did in this paper was uh, activate using optogenetics, uh, cholinergic neurons in the dorsal motor nucleus uh, of the brainstem to inhibit TNF. So um, the first thing that um, Adam did was he wanted to kind of uh, clearly show the, the anatomical, anatomical circuit, the neural circuit that descends from the brainstem dorsal motor nucleus, DMN, uh, down to uh, something called the celiac superior mesenteric ganglionic complex, or let's just call it celiac ganglion complex. Um, and then ultimately to the spleen where uh, macrophages produce uh, cytokines, such as TNF. Uh, so what Adam did was he injected uh, AAV, which is a adenovirus, um, with channel rhodopsin and YFP into the brainstem DMN. Uh, that traveled down to the celiac ganglion. And then he used a retrograde a trace, a viral tracer called 
herpes simplex virus one uh, with an M cherry tag into the spleen. So if you look um, in the brainstem, uh, this is just showing, uh, you know, you give it three to four weeks for the mice to express uh, the, the tag and the virus. Um, and you can see these are channel rhodopsin YP positive neurons that are chat uh, positive. So these are choline acetyltransferase positive. They're cholinergic neurons and on the merge, you can see um, these are the neurons that he's later gonna activate. And then when we look in the celiac ganglion, or when he looked in the celiac ganglion, I'm not gonna go through all those panels, but on the first row labeling for new N, these are neurons that are in the celiac ganglion. Um, and then uh, channel rhodopsin, which is coming from the uh, AAV injection in the, in the brainstem, um, co-labeled with synaptophysin, which is what SYP is. You can see an overlap. And then if we just jump to the bottom, uh, the M-cherry neurons located in the uh, celiac ganglion, they're M-cherry positive because they were labeled by this retrograde injection of HSV into the spleen. So if we look at O, we can see the merge of all these, which is that these are noradrenergic neurons coming from the celiac ganglion, receiving what look to be um, terminals from the dorsal motor nucleus uh, of the brainstem in the celiac ganglion. And then so, um, the functional experiments in this paper involved uh, then performing optogenetic simulation. So uh, optogenetics is, is a way to use light sensitive uh, opsins they're called. In this case, we used something called channel rhodopsin 2, which is one of the most popular ones, uh, which is activated by blue light. And you can put those, the strength of optogenetics is you can put those specifically in genetically identified populations. In this case, we put them in chat uh, cholinergic neurons. Uh, so when atoms shine blue light in the DMN, we would activate those neurons selectively. Um, they, these uh, neurons are not responsive to yellow light. So in a control experiment, uh, shining yellow light on these neurons didn't do anything uh, to, to levels of TNF here. Uh, however, when he used blue light into the uh, dorsal motor nucleus of the brainstem, um, he saw a reduction in levels of TNF in a model of endotoxemia. And then he went one step further uh, to show that uh, if you place a recording, a nerve cuff electrode on the splenic nerve, so these were pretty challenging experiments because in a mouse, the splenic nerve is tiny. Uh, but what he did was then in a litter mate control that did not have channel rhodopsin, when he turned on the blue light up in the brain, uh, in the brain stem, he didn't see any change in activity on the splenic nerve. However, when he uh, turned on blue light in a chat channel rhodopsin animal, uh, you saw a, a dramatic increase in levels of activity on the splenic nerve. Uh, so, you know, this work um, kind of uh, highlights and, and, and goes in this large body of literature um, about the descending cholinergic motor efferents that originate in the dorsal motor nucleus uh, of the brainstem here, DMN. And then they travel down in this, what are called motor efferents going down the vagus nerve to the celiac ganglion, ultimately uh, going to the spleen and, and um, uh, affecting macrophages that uh, reduce levels of TNF. Uh, so, you know, wh what is this circuit, the inflammatory reflux, useful for? Um, really for reducing inflammation in a wide variety uh, of disorders, uh, whether acute or chronic. And, and, you know, if you think about the major human diseases, just about all of them involve inflammation of some sort. Um, so, you know, whether it's from infection or trauma or an injury, or in the case of chronic uh, disorders, uh, many disorders involve inflammation of different uh, tissue sites or the brain, uh, neuroinflammation. 
uh, including autoimmune diseases uh, such as rheumatoid arthritis and type 1 diabetes. Uh, so um, so um, Monica asked me to talk a little bit about uh, VNS uh, and, and some of the work uh, uh, in human patients. So uh, this is a, a paper that uh, was published fr from Dr. Tracy's lab and um, collaborators in Amsterdam, uh, as well as some people from a company that showed uh, and published in PNAS showing that VNS, vagus nerve stimulation, uh, can inhibit cytokine production um, and attenuate uh, disease symptoms in a rheumatoid arthritis patients. So uh, what they did in this, this is actually an interesting, this is figure one, I believe, of the paper. Um, what they did was uh, in patients that are getting the VNS implant for epilepsy, because it's FDA approved for epilepsy, uh, they did perform some blood draws in, in um, prior to implant and then post implant, but prior to VNS. Uh, and that's what these first time points are. Uh, and then performed a, a human whole blood, uh, what's called a LPS assay. And they found that in a blood taken from post VNS, uh, there was actually reduced levels of, of cytokines, uh, TNF, uh, as well as uh, other inflammatory cytokines such as IL-6 and interleukin-1. Uh, and so that was more shown in human in vitro, um, but what about in RA patients? So um, what, uh, what's plotted here is on the y-axis is a, a, a DAS-28 scale, which is disease activity score um, across um, multiple joints. So measures swelling across multiple joints in, in um, RA patients and includes the CRP, C-reactive protein in the serum. So you know, lower values on this uh, as we go this way are better, there's symptom improvement. So you can see on this dotted line that uh, this is when the VNS implant took place. And uh, this was a small study, you know, a total of 17 patients, but uh, you can see in cohort one, these are actually RA patients that failed uh, methotrexate, which is the first line indication uh, uh, drug treatment for RA. Um, the second cohort, um, it failed multiple biologics, such as uh, anti-TNF monoclonals. Um, so you can see in both cohorts, um, the center line is them combined with the triangles that over the course with the VNS implant turned on, their symptoms improved fairly significantly up through day 42 of the trial of the study. And then there was a two week period where the implant was turned off. Uh, and then you can see there was a little bit of a rebound in some of their symptoms as scored by DAS-28. And then they uh, improved a little bit again by the end of the study. Um, and then, so, you know, this was uh, in 2016. Uh, since then, there was another uh, human uh, study uh, doing a VNS uh, in uh, multi-drug refractory room, uh, RA patients, again, that showed good efficacy for these VNS implants. Um, so, so, you know, based on these human studies, and then a large body of uh, preclinical work dating back over 20 years, um, there's a company in, uh, based out of uh, Valencia, California called Setpoint Medical uh, that is actually uh, uh, actively recruiting for a trial uh, of RA um, running through the end of this year. They're currently in phase three, and they're running through the end of this year with a target to enroll 250 patients at uh, multiple different sites, up to 40 sites, uh, with a double-blind uh, sham control trial. The, the uh, study is uh, called Reset RA. And you can see, uh, this is the clinicaltrials.gov uh, identifier. Um, you can see what the implant looks like. It's about the size of a fish oil pill. 
that some of us take uh, and uh, you know has a little sleeve they call the pod uh, that uh, uh, houses the microregulator and the implant is like I said on the left side vagus nerve typically uh, and it's actually an outpatient uh, procedure even though it's a you know requires a neurosurgeon it's can be done in 60 to 90 minutes and then the the uh, stimulation parameters can be controlled wirelessly um, so that's a you know a trial that's happening now and it's a it's part of this emerging field uh, that uh, several investigators here at Feinstein are a part of uh, called bioelectronic medicine. Um, and, and in this case, uh, bioelectronic medicine to activate the inflammatory reflex uh, for the purpose of treating inflammation. And so, um, you know, bioelectronic medicine is this uh, uh, new emerging field where uh, we want an understanding of a molecular target, let's say TNF produced from the spleen. Um, and so, you know, it's a combination of molecular biology to identify targets and then to understand the signals. Uh, neuroscientists like myself understanding signals on nerves or on neurons um, that are involved in these circuits to, um, you know, mediate readouts of that molecular signal um, to mediate things that are happening in an end organ or in the body. And then we work also with uh, electrical engineers and material scientists to design and, and implement devices and implant devices um, you know, either in, in preclinical animal models or in patients um, to then modify the course of disease, to treat disease. So this is a, this is a, a new type of therapy to treat disease with electricities and electrons as opposed to using uh, traditional pharmaceuticals. Uh, and uh, let's see. so, you know, the, the strategy used by Setpoint um, is to treat rheumatoid arthritis is an example of bioelectronic medicine. Uh, to activate the inflammatory reflex. Um, there are other indications uh, that, uh, in, including inflammatory bowel disease, which includes Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, um, with a similar rationale that if you implant, if you put at the cervical level a stimulator and electrically stimulate the vagus nerve, that you can ultimately reduce levels of circulating cytokines, and in the case of IBD, reduce inflammation in the gut and other compartments um, that are that have an impact on patients. And you know, sometimes people think of this as maybe competing with or, or, uh, or replacing drugs. But in, in many cases, this could actually be considered an adjunctive therapy that's used in combination with drugs. So um, you know, and actually in the set point trial, um, they, they are, um, pa patients have to fail methotrexate. But well, while they're in the study, I believe they can still stay on methotrexate. So um, again, in, in, you know, the, the end goal is to improve symptoms and ideally cure disease and disorders. So if it requires a combination of a, a nerve cuff electrode and implant in combination with the pharmaceutical uh, regime, and, that, and that's what's needed to improve the patient's symptoms, then that's what uh, uh, we should go for, right? Uh, so, so up to this point, we've uh, focused on the descending motor efferents that are in this inflammatory reflex mostly. But uh, if you recall from the beginning, what I said is that the vagus nerve is actually 90%, up to 90% sensory afferents. So um, if we look at the other side of the coin or of the nerve, um, we can see that uh, the you know sensory information coming from the body and, and different tissue compartments going up to the brain can travel either through dorsal root ganglia and the, and the spinal cord uh, through the spinal chain. Uh, or uh, the other part, which I'm going to talk about um, now, is um, the, the vagus nerve also sends visceral, uh, sometimes called interoceptive 
information up to the brain via the nodal's ganglion, uh, which you're going to hear about uh, next. Uh, and then the next synapse after the nodos, so that's the last kind of part of the peripheral nervous system before we go into the CNS, is the NTS, which is the nucleus tractus solitarius, part of the brain stem, and then that sends information to other parts of the brain. Um, so if we look at just the sensory uh, vagus nerve, um, one of the big questions we're working on in the lab uh, now is uh, how is inflammation and other types of, of stimuli that are happening in the body sensed by the peripheral nervous system, uh, sensed and encoded by the peripheral nervous system. So you can see, again, that the uh, vagus nerves innervates all these organs in our body. I highlighted the pancreas here for this audience. Um, but uh, so what we want to know is when there's injury or inflammation happening in a part of the body, um, you know, there's a typical inflammatory response. And, and, and um, critical to that uh, or, uh, is a cytokine release, such as tumor necrosis factor, which I already spoke about, IL-1, IL-6, and sometimes uh, IL-10, anti-inflammatory cytokines as well. So uh, we want to know how are those things encoded by um, the vagus nerve? And so, like I said, when there's inflammation in different organ sites, um, how does the brain ultimately know about that? And how is that um, encoded by, uh, we think, um, by these nodose ganglion neurons, because these are where the cell bodies of the sensory afferents reside. So in that uh, PNAS paper uh, with optogenetics, uh, we, we activated the cell bodies of the, the, the efferents that go down to the organs, those are of the cholinergic efferents, uh, but the cell bodies of the sensory afferents that go up to the brain uh, reside here in the nodose. So uh, this is a paper that uh, our lab published uh, just last month. Uh, and this was work led by uh, Tomas Huerta, who's a, currently a postdoc in the lab. Uh, and what we did here was uh, develop a set of tools uh, and techniques for imaging uh, this uh, nodose ganglion, uh, uh, which houses these uh, vagal sensory neurons. And uh, you can see that um, where the nodose ganglion is, is just kind of this little bump here on the vagus nerve. And because of where it's located at the base of the skull, and this is also the case in humans, is that the uh, base of the skull at really high up in the neck. Um, it's, it's in an area that's very difficult to access. Uh, so we wanted to image those nodes neurons, uh, Tomas uh, and the lab develop a technique, a uh, surgical approach that basically, I'm not gonna show you the surgery images, but uh, under anesthesia, you can open up the neck of the mouse uh, and then um, isolate, find the vagus nerve, see as it crosses the, another cranial nerve hypoglossal. And then this, at the bottom of this, this is as we go down uh, closer to the skull, um, that's where the nodose ganglion is. And then we developed a set of tools, uh, a set of approaches to stabilize the nodose. Uh, and then while it's still intact, fully intact and connected to the vagus nerve, so it's still uh, connected to all the organs of the body, uh, we use something called a miniature microscope or a miniscope uh, to then image the nodose intact and then uh, apply uh, at different agonists uh, that I'll show you next uh, to the vagus nerve uh, just below it. And we did this in um, mice that are, have a genetically encoded calcium indicator called GCAMP6F. And uh, we did this in mice that um, have um, only this calcium in indicator in glutamatergic neurons. So these are in VGLUT2 GCAMP6F mice. We did that because we know that these uh, vagal sensory afferents are actually glutamatergic. Uh, the vast majority of them are glutamatergic. Uh, so in these mice and in these nodos, when there's uh, 
neuronal activity, we see changes in fluorescence that we'll be able to image with the miniscope. Um, and then we develop a set of tools um, on the software side uh, on, on um, some Python-based uh, software pa packages that allow us to uh, take the uh, identified neurons where they are in space in the nodos and then plot uh, what are called calcium traces, which are basically changes in fluorescence over time. So um, this is what it looks like um, when we actually image the nodos. And in this case, this is to an application of capsaicin, which activates TRPV1 channels, uh, which many of these nodos neurons have. And you can see um, this is kind of like a raw video, um, uh, raw, raw data, which is essentially videos. And every time you see um, you know, basically these white spots flashing, that's a change in uh, calcium fluorescence. Uh, that is an indication of these neurons uh, actively firing. Uh, and um, so this is a figure from the, the paper that was just published. And, um, and again, you can see more details about it if you're interested in the paper. But we uh, develop tools to uh, uh, identify the regions of interest with the neurons, then plot the traces to specific chemical stimuli, in this case, capsaicin, and then um, select out and filter out the neurons. Some of these neurons respond to different things like mechanical sensation or breathing or, or uh, things that are happening with different organs because this nerve is connected to almost all the major organs. Uh, so we want to know the, just the ones that respond to our uh, chemical agonist. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, in addition to capsaicin, we decided to, because we're in, interested in inflammation, to look at these other, um, uh, other channels, uh, TRIP channels. So capsaicin, as I said, is, is activating TRIP-V1. Um, but transient receptor potential channels such as TRIP-V1 and TRIP-A1, which is ANCRIN1, is another channel uh, that uh, is located on these nodos uh, neurons uh, that have been linked with inflammation. TRIP-A1 is off, uh, activated by thermal changes such as noxious cold, uh, cinnamaldehyde, uh, mustard oil, uh, as well as a chemical called AITC, which is what we ended up using. TRIP-V1, many of you may have heard of, is uh, what's activated by the capsaicin, which is what makes chili peppers hot. Uh, it's also obviously then also activated by changes in heat uh, and uh, low and acidity. Uh, and then we we know also metabotropic glutamate receptors are on these neurons. So we another agonist we use is glutamate. So using these uh, different classes of agonists on the vagus nerve, we then uh, wanted to look at different components of these calcium transients. So um, we, you know, we quantify the, the peak of the responses, the number of peaks, the duration, and the integral. And um, what we saw is that when we applied capsaicin or glutamate or AITC uh, onto the vagus nerve, uh, and you can think, you can extrapolate out uh, one step and say, what if capsaicin was in the gut or in the pancreas or in the liver, um, that there were certain uh, signatures that were unique to each class of agonists. So, for example, capsaicin had a higher uh, peak amplitude, uh, but a lower duration when you compare it to glutamate. So these seem to be certain you know, um, characteristic signatures of each class of uh, chemical agonists. And then what we did next was then uh, we take all these traces and we wanted to see, well, if we just looked at the neural activity in the nodos ganglion of these vagal sensory neurons, uh, could, we, uh, could we tell that which agonist was applied to the vagus nerve without knowing that? So uh, what we then do uh, uh, is use a machine learning uh, random forest classifier to put in several of those components. Uh, we chose four of them, amplitude, duration, number of peaks, and integral into a random forest classifier. And then basically it 
based on those features, would we be able to classify this trace was, uh, you know, capsaicin was applied or this was AITC was applied. Uh, and so uh, the result, um, this is a figure in the paper, this is the receiver operating curve, um, the ROC curve for the performance of the random force classifier. And you can see uh, for, for capsaicin, for example, the, the model was uh, had an accuracy of about 82% um, for just looking at the traces and, and classifying that as capsaicin. Uh, 78% for glutamate and a little lower 71% for AITC. Uh, another thing that we found was interesting is that if you look at the Shapley explanatory values or the SHAP values, uh, that there are certain features of those calcium transients, particularly the duration and amplitude, that were that had a particularly high impact on the performance of the random forest model. So, uh, you know, what this told what this tells us is that um, the information that the vagus nerve is seeing. Um, uh, as far as specific chemical agonists, in this case, capsaicin glutamate and AITC, activating different channels is encoded in a particular way uh, by these neurons in the peripheral nervous system before it even gets to the brain. Um, and you know what we're really interested in, and, and this is a work uh, that is in progress that we're working on now, um, and, and again, uh, led by Tomas Huerta, uh, is that um, you know, we want to know, are there cytokine-specific responses? So when we apply IL-1 uh, to the nerve, or when IL-1 goes up uh, in the lung or in the liver, uh, and you can see in this video uh, that there's a single uh, neuron here that seems to be robustly responding to IL-1 in a, a characteristic fashion, you know, kind of in a bursty fashion. Um, uh, what are the cytokine-specific neural responses? Uh, and, and that gives us insight into how the peripheral nervous system encodes um, aspects of inflammation. Uh, as I said, uh, you know, we're interested, also we have data uh, recording of when TNF is applied. Um, so you can see, you can kind of see if you compare and contrast the capsaicin video uh, that the cytokine responses look pretty different. Uh, and uh, as I said, we're, we're, we're working on this now. And what we're starting to see uh, in a similar way is that um, there seem to be characteristic patterns for IL-1 neuronal responses uh, that are different from those to TNF. We also have data I'm not showing here on IL-10. And uh, you know, this starts to put together um, some, some rules for how these things are encoded uh, by these neurons. And, um, and we also have data in a disease model of chronic inflammation um, that, you know, so stay tuned. Uh, we're working on that paper now, uh, but basically, there seem to be very significant differences that happen in, in the nodos ganglion uh, when there's a chronic a state of elevated inflammation, uh, specifically that these neurons and vagus nerve uh, activity seem to be highly increased uh, in those states. Uh, so, so just to uh, then bring some of this work back to the vagus nerve and, and type one diabetes, which uh, this is what the, this audience I think is interested in, uh, this is work uh, that maybe some of you are familiar with um, from a lab at University of uh, Miami, Alejandro Casado's lab, uh, which, uh, so this is not our work, but you can see uh, the vagus nerve also innervates the pancreas, and you can see in this very nice uh, images they have here, substance P to, uh, to label the sensory, um, the sensory aspects that go into the pancreas, and you can see that um, the innervation is very close to the islet cells, and what they showed in this paper is that uh, the beta cells in the pancreas release insulin, but they also simultaneously 
release a neurotransmitter called serotonin or 5-HT. Um, so, you know, uh, that work like this uh, and others are starting to re reveal uh, at a molecular level and, a, and at a neural level some mechanisms, mechanisms of communication between different pancreatic cells and the vagus nerve. Uh, we're starting to understand how that happens. Uh, and this has implications for signaling to different areas of the brain. Uh, and, you know, throughout all this, I haven't talked about the brain at all. So I hope the neuroscience gods will forgive me. Uh, but, uh, you know, the brain obviously has important roles and functions as far as providing, uh, particularly, let's say, the hypothalamus for top-down control of insulin and, and um, potentially blood glucose as well. Um, uh, VNS, uh, vagus nerve stimulation, and other uh, bioelectronic medicine approaches, such as stimulation of other nerves uh, that innervate end organs like the pancreatic nerve, uh, are and have been explored for the regulation of blood glucose in uh, hyperglycemia. And of course, um, you know, the regulation of blood glucose, something as, as important as blood glucose, is likely to be multifactorial with multiple redundant molecular and neural uh, circuits that are involved in its regulation. So, you know, people want to think that the vagus nerve does everything and, and can control everything. Uh, and it's involved in many things. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, there are obviously uh, redundant mechanisms in place, uh, including the brain. Let's not forget about the brain. Um, so on a, from the clinical perspective, some symptoms of type 1 diabetes have been associated with damage to the vagus nerve, including uh, gastroparesis, the slowing of, of uh, gastric motility, um, which are associated with heartburn, nausea, and, and abdominal bloating. Uh, and there seem to be a handful of papers showing that there's actually vagus nerve atrophy in, in some diabetic patient populations. So, um, you know, there, there is evidence of a, of a clear connection and then work from um, labs uh, such as the one uh, work from like this on the left showing, um, you know, increased understanding of, of what exactly the vagus nerve is doing in its innervation of the pancreas. And then, of course, uh, how is the brain involved in, in some of this regulation as well? Uh, our lab uh, at the fine scene has published uh, a little bit of work in this space. And this is um, a work done uh, with Dr. Tracy's lab and another lab here, Dr. Theo Zanos, who uh, um, works in artificial intelligence and machine learning and uh, data analytics. And, and this was work led by Emily, uh, Emily Badnelli Massey, who was another graduate student in the lab. And what Emily did was um, perform vagus nerve recordings. Um, this is under anesthesia, but basically you have a, a nerve cuff electrode interfacing with the vagus nerve, hook it up to an amplifier and record vagus nerve activity, of which there's a lot of activity and it's very noisy because of all these signals going up and down uh, to the brain and the body, between the brain and the body. Uh, but what Theo's lab did was uh, use some data analytic tools to extract uh, basically what are called compound action potential clusters, CAP clusters, uh, from this uh, you know, very rich signal. And what they found was that um, if you, uh, you're doing, uh, Emily performed the vagus nerve recording, and then at 30 minutes in, um, you're tracking these clusters uh, as they come in and out. And they saw that following an injection IP of insulin, compared to saline, that there were certain um, groups, cap clusters, waveform clusters. These aren't necessarily individual fibers, but they're potentially groups of fibers and groups of neurons um, that became active following insulin injection. Um, so 
it appears from this work and, and a handful of others that there, the vagus nerve does carry information about um, insulin specifically, uh, you know, and whether or not these cap clusters and these fibers or neurons are, are you know, related to, uh, you know, these vagal sensory axons that are, uh, that they worked on in this paper uh, it remains to be seen, but that's a possibility. Um, of course, uh, this audience is probably aware of artificial uh, pancreas, which is, which is a de device implant um, to, to release insulin into the body. Uh, of course, for bioelectronic medicine, what we try to aim for is a closed loop uh, approach, which is, you know, having a sensor, whether that be a nerve cuff or some uh, another sensor in a different part of the body that can sense changes and, um, you know, signal the device to release insulin. Uh, there's the next generation of this artificial pancreas, which can release insulin and glucagon. So, uh, you know, the, these this technology is only going to improve. Um, I think in this space, what we're missing is a, is a good understanding of the neural signals that are important um, to actually to implement a, a real closed loop system that would uh, really be beneficial um, as over standard treatment for, for patients. So um, let's see, this is uh, my third to last slide, I think. Uh, but, but to sum up the, the many different functions and talents of the sensory vagus nerve, um, you know, uh, now you've seen many different uh, uh, schematics and versions of this, but basically we know that uh, the sensory vagus nerve innervates all these organs. And I didn't have time to talk about it today, but our lab has also published work um, um, activating with focused ultrasound simulation. This is a collaboration with GE Research, um, stimulating the sensory innervation of the liver at the porta hepatis. And if you're interested in that, that was uh, Tomas Cuerta was the lead author. That was published in 2021. Um, and I'm not going to go through all these, but basically, um, you know, we've known for a long time that the vagus nerve is involved in uh, many of um, physiological functions and innervates many of these end organs, almost all the major end organs. Uh, but now, and, and this is why so many labs and research groups are potentially interested in it, um, you know, including ours. Um, but, you know, the vagus nerve has clear involvement in many different functions and potentially disorders. So your disorder of interest that your lab studies, uh, you can probably find some vagus nerve involvement if it's innervated um, by the vagus nerve. Uh, but what's starting to change in the last five to 10 years is that we're really starting to see, uh, we as a community are starting to see uh, what are the actual receptors and molecular mechanisms that are involved in some of these reflexes that have been known for you know, 100 years or more um, that you know, lung stretch re uh, reflexes, uh, stomach distension. Uh, we know that the vagus nerve is involved in these, but now using modern tools that include optogenetics, uh, molecular genetics, uh, you know, Cree-based mouse, mouse lines, and improved technology, we're starting to uh, really understand that piezos, uh, the, the, those channels are involved in this exact reflex and this exact function. Um, you know, the, the showing that serotonin is involved in signaling from the pancreas up to the brain is another example of, of how we're getting a better handle on how does the vagus nerve perform all these different uh, varied functions. Uh, so just to uh, summarize, uh, this is a very uh, famous uh, illustration from the neuroanatomist Andreas Vesalius. Uh, you can see when it was made. So you know, 500 years later now, uh, you know, we, we've known for a long time the macroscopic organization and, and the fact that this complex nerve innervated uh, all these tissue compartments and organs. Uh, but 
you know, what's changed uh, really in the last 10 years or five years is that, um, you know, there's advances in genetics such as single cell RNA-seq, um, advances in, in uh, indicators like in neuroscience and technology such as, uh, you know, the GCAMP6 we use. There's also voltage indicators that are being developed, um, uh, you know, and as well as technologies to image uh, uh, them at a high resolution, both, both uh, spatial and temporal. Um, using these modern tools, we can start to reveal some of the coding strategies used by the vagus nerve to uh, transmit all these signals up to the brain and uh, you know, allow us to survive. Um, our lab has, you know, very recently with this last paper, uh, contributed a small part to this uh, by, you know, uh, developing a set of tools uh, to perform in vivo imaging of these vagal sensory neurons as they respond to different specific chemical stimuli and uh, inflammatory mediators and uh, you know, we're, we're working now to see uh, what, what's the coding pattern that these neurons use for cytokines. Um, and what we know already is that um, this, these signals are encoded in the periphery before uh, the information is, is sent to the brain. And, um, you know, new approaches, uh, I think, are going to come out in this field of bioelectronic medicine uh, that will hopefully be able to capitalize on some of this understanding of these neural signals on the vagus nerve and of these neurons to treat different inflammatory conditions. You know, um, the company is already, uh, Setpoint is already in phase three trials for RA. So that's one that's on the horizon, uh, but other autoimmune disorders are certainly possibilities. As long as we understand the molecular basis of what's going on in the neural circuit that might be uh, manipulated to treat those diseases. Um, so finally, I wanna thank you, uh, everyone who's online uh, for your time. Thank you to Monica and Sugar Science for the invitation. Uh, and I want to thank, uh, I work closely with several faculty members uh, here at the Feinstein Institutes. Uh, and also, um, this is a subset of our lab, larger lab group, uh, including specifically the people that contributed to the work that I showed you today. Um, um, I want to thank and acknowledge our funding sources. And if anyone has any questions for me afterwards, here's my email address and my Twitter handle. And uh, thank you and happy to take any questions. Thank you, Eric. That was excellent. Um, it was really, it, it's fascinating how you um, and your team are really kind of going after understanding the crosstalk between organ and, and brain. Um, I, I had a couple questions, and anyone is free to, you know, raise your hand. So I had a quick question, you know, so, so in many autoimmune diseases, not only do the sympathetic nerves become overactive, they kind of rearrange themselves in a pro-inflammatory circuit. And then in response, the vagus nerve, which opposes them, becomes underactive, right? Um, and so, you know, would do you know of anyone who's done the work sort of like, you know, recording the vagal nerve in those who have are at risk for autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes before and after their diagnosis? Um, no, I'm not aware. So obviously recording from the vagus nerve um, is very challenging. In, I'm, I'm sorry, in, not recording, but sort of like sort of, maybe even looking at like reduce RHV heart rate. Yeah, yeah. so right. So the, the standard autonomic measure being used is heart rate variability, which is a, a kind of a proxy for vagal tone. Um, but um, at least in, 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 in my estimation of it, it seems to be a very un, unreliable it's not really a robust measure. Yeah. Um, and, and really uh, what some groups, including some labs here at Feinstein are trying to do 
or to actually perform recordings of activity like what I showed you that uh, that study was done under anesthesia and you know just because of where the vagus nerve is uh, in the neck you know there's a lot of movement artifacts when you try to perform chronic recordings um, our lab has worked with other labs here to uh, develop and and publish techniques on doing chronic recordings and I think that's happening now and and I think we'll hear more about uh, what exactly different parts of, you know, just the cervical level, you know, you kind of catch all the information that's going up to the brain and also going down to organs. Uh, we really need to get closer to the end organs and try to record uh, and stimulate at those sites. Um, so to, to come back to your question, I'm not aware of people uh, with uh, even HRV readouts before and after uh, diabetes, uh, although there, there may be some. Um, you know, I think what's clear is that there is autonomic involvement in a lot of these disorders, uh, and, and it's becoming bigger following COVID too, right? Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think the non-invasive measures, um, to, is particularly in humans, are challenging. You know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of noise, and, and I would not say they're robust. Um, so um, short of performing an actual uh, cough recording on a, a human nerve, which actually some groups have done. Um, um, I can send you those papers later. I don't recall the, the groups, but it was just last year. Uh, a couple groups have actually done human Vegas recordings. Um, That'd be great. We'll post those. Yeah, the, the HRV is uh, is not particularly reliable. It's just what people have at hand and what you can have as a non-invasive readout. Right. And just sort of that to follow up on the sort of this tracking people. Um, in this upcoming set point RA trial, will um, T1D as a comorbid condition be tracked at all or captured? Uh, that I don't know. I mean, we don't have any involvement uh, with the company. Um, I, I don't know if uh, there's any uh, type 1 diabetes component to that at all, mm -hmm. um, but I, I can find out for you. It would uh, be but so we, yeah, interesting to yeah. capture that cohort. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in uh, you can see on clinicaltrials.gov uh, yep. what the eligibility criteria are. So it, it may be even that if you have other uh, comorbidities that you might be excluded from right. from that trial because you know they probably want it to be as clean as possible. You know, um, but um, I, I don't know if that's. I know that they're looking at other things like multiple sclerosis, for example, and other things. Uh, and there are many other groups looking in type one diabetes uh, for sure. Oh, great. The paper of the VN recordings in humans Dr. Chain was referring to is now been posted in the chat by uh, Dr. Amparo Guermas. Um, Hi, yes, sure. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for the super interesting talk. So I also work on recording uh, from the vagus nerve, and so I'm quite uh, into the, the field as well. And one of the questions that people keep asking me is that, because um, my I envision also this closed loop uh, control uh, adding the, the neuromodulation as well. And people constantly ask, ask me um, how to, or how is it feasible to do an invasive approach? Because of course, like for recording, as you were saying, like non-invasive strategies are are really not, not reliable enough. So um, uh, like people with diabetes that they manage to control their disease in a non-invasive or minimally invasive way, um, whether this is something that makes sense and uh, yeah. I would like to, to get your opinion on that because um, I mean I have mine, but I'm always happy to to, um, to get other other feedback. 
Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly very challenging. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Uh, and, and, you know, you know, we, we and, and, and other labs here at the Feinstein, as well as other collaborators uh, in the US have developed techniques to do chronic recording of the mouse cervical vagus, which is a 80 to 90 micron diameter nerve uh, that's constantly moving around because of where it is. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'm hopeful that, um, that, uh, you know, bioengineers uh, and, and the people like in your group as well um, uh, that you work with um, will be able to develop techniques maybe at the cervical level because there's so much information going up and down and it's a mixed fascicle. You know, uh, we do a lot of work in mouse and rodents, but obviously other groups work in sheep and, and pigs and humans, uh, which the, the fascicular organization is different. Uh, mm -hmm. And there are different strategies that other labs use to, to address certain fascicles in the cervical level. But in some cases, it might make more sense to do an implant or a stimulation or a recording device uh, near the end organs, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, as far as, you know, the bioengineering aspect, I, I think, uh, and there are other groups like, um, I believe John Rogers group, uh, you know, uh, and, and um, Tim Brun's group at, at Michigan have, mm -hmm. you know, recordings of, of um, nerves that go into the bladder for bladder control. Uh, and, you know, so looking at the signals that are going close to an end organ might be more useful uh, if you're trying to treat a disorder that that organ is the primary target, uh, rather than going up to the cervical level, uh, which has different challenges. Um, and you know, obviously, even if it's a, 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 a neural interface at the pancreas or at the bladder, um, um, you know, obviously there's still some movement, but it might be less than in a highly dynamic region like the neck. Totally. So, so I think, you know, and, and like you shared this paper, I mean, it's possible to do it. In I humans. was, I was so shocked when I read it, like they basically yes. put a tungsten microwire inside the Vegas nerves. I was like, wow, I'm yes. struggling. Like, I'm just working with rats here. Um, <laughs> like, of just course, rats. like I dream of pigs, but like humans, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a different level. Yeah. And yeah, so obviously the, the pig fascicular organization is, is, is closer to the human. It's actually more fascicles than a human. Um, but, you know, the, then the stimulation and recording strategies for these different types of organization uh, are, will have to differ. So the, the electro design will have to differ. Uh, and, you know, uh, Stavros Zanos' lab here at the Feinstein Institute yeah. has, has a grant to, to study exactly that question uh, and to map out the organization in the human vagus nerve. Uh, from human cadavers. That is very interesting work. Well, thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. Well, yeah, Ampar, Dr. Amparo Guermas uh, coming from uh, Cambridge University and sounds like maybe there's a conversation that could be continued uh, yeah. to foster some collaboration. Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. And thank you, Monica, for, for hosting this once again. Oh, no, I'm, this is a very, uh, this is a very interesting um, field and it's just, it's growing so quickly. And it, ha I think there's a lot of runway, um, for inquiry here in terms of type one diabetes. So we're really, um, following, um, you know, young stuff, uh, I would say up and comers and, and contributors like yourself and, and, uh, Eric Chang. Um, I wondered, I see that Kevin Tracy is here. Uh, I wondered if he might unmute and just sort of share his vision for um, the ultimate, you know, uh, application of some of the the um, 
you know, technology that, that the group is developing in terms of autoimmunity? Well, I, I, sure. I, hi. I, hi. First, I want to congratulate Eric for, for his talk. It was great. Um, I learned a lot, actually. I'm going to have to have Eric give the same talk now to the lab, many of whom are not on this call. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I think that there's opportunities um, through recording or visualizing, as Eric's doing, or through deriving additional maps to, to just think differently, first of all, than what the textbooks say. Um, you know, Eric, Eric really, uh, I don't think he did in his talk and usually doesn't, I never do, talk about sympathetic versus parasympathetic because, you know, by the, by the movies that you watched, um, the, 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 func the function is much more complicated than left or right, sympathetic or parasympathetic. Um, I think we have the tools in place now that, as Eric was talking about, to ask questions about individual fibers and not, not what family they belong to, but what, what functions do they control at the cellular or mechanistic or molecular level? And how can we manipulate them in the context of a, of a therapeutic question or goal? And that's the, I think that's the, that's the overall, that's the future of this field, um, bringing together neuroscience, um, endocrinology or immunology, physiology call it, and biomedical engineering. It's gonna be, it's gonna change how people think about designing therapeutics, because if you, if you have a molecular target in mind, then your challenge is to map the sensory fibers uh, to that target and or the motor fibers uh, to that target, which can, can affect a, a change in the, in the tissue. So, yeah, I think that, I think, I think that's the vision. I think, I think the vision is that if you can, if you can map a disease to a specific molecular mechanism, then it is now possible to, to at least frame the question, are there neural circuits that reflexively target that mechanism? And if so, can they be hacked to develop new therapies? Yeah, that's perfectly put, right? First the cartography, then the hacking. Yes. Yes. Agreed. That's great. Um, just, uh, you know, hats off to all you're doing there at Feinstein and Northwell um, and, you know, uh, around the world, around the globe as people address bioelectronic medicine in context of autoimmunity. Thank you both again uh, and everyone who attended and, um, we look forward to the next papers coming, coming out of the laboratory. All right, we'll let you know. All right, we'll move we'll you right. Have Thank a great so rest of your day. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Bye -bye.